Everyday people are faced with difficult choices that they have to make, whether in the workplace or not. Today's fun question is, do you like to stay up till midnight on New Year's Eve or are you early to bed? It's our last episode of the year. I can't believe that we are already only a few days away from New Year's Eve, depending upon when you are listening to this, or maybe it's already 2024. In all honesty, I can't believe this year's finally here. Um, I have been talking about it since January 2020. I don't know if I am ready for all of the craziness that is going to come our way, but I'm very excited about it. This is our last episode, and I'm going to take a little bit of a break to think through how we might want to revamp the podcast. And so I do want to ask if you haven't filled out the survey yet to please go to the show notes and do so. I'm really curious for your input on what else you would like to see from this podcast. It's been a really um, fun and different way for me to share some of the folks that I know and dive deeper into these issues in a way that I'm not able to do in my newsletter. And I've got a really great guest for you for our last one. Sarah O oh is another former colleague of mine at Meta. She has a fantastic human rights background. We worked together on elections across the Asia region. She then moved over to Twitter. And part of the reason I wanted to have Sarah on is that she most recently was a co-founder founder of a, a Twitter clone, if you will, called um, originally called T2, and then they sh- shifted it to Pebble. And they really wanted to take a human rights and safety-centered approach to building the platform. Unfortunately, they had to close a couple of weeks ago just due to slow growth and uh, funding. Sarah goes into a lot of that. But I really wanted to talk to her about why they wanted to take that approach, what they learned, and how people can learn from that in going forward. So I really hope that you enjoy this episode with Sarah. And before we get into that, I just want to thank all of you for listening, for your support. I hope you have a fabulous new year and we will be back. I want to welcome Sarah O oh to Impossible Trade-Offs. Sarah and I have known each other for a long time. We were colleagues at Meta and we've worked together in a lot of different situations. And I'm really excited to talk to her today about all things tech and democracy. And Sarah, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Katie. I'm so happy to be here. So let's jump in first, maybe by sharing a little bit about who you are, your career path, sort of the things that you like to focus on. Sure. Yeah. I, gosh, where to start? I have always been interested in politics. I have family. My grandparents were refugees from North Korea, and that got me really interested from a really early age in closed societies and uh, the question of how do you get access to information in places like that. I moved to D.C. after college, and the most interesting thing that was happening then with politics was how people were using tech to be heard. What year was that? I moved uh, to D.C. in 2008, And two years later was the height of Twitter and the Arab Spring and, of course, governments then now really trying to use and leverage social media. So what happened, I guess, through the course of that was, of course, the abuse of all this tech. I got into this work thinking I would be working with activists, governments and leaders around the world to use things like Twitter and Facebook uh, for positive impact. But of course, the the tide turned very quickly. And what I've been focused on since then is how you protect people on these platforms and the abuse that's been associated with social media. And uh, happy to talk a little bit more about where that's led me, but that's uh, where I got started. 
Yeah, I mean, maybe share a little bit of sort of your journey and your roles at places like Meta and, well, it was then Twitter, um, and we'll get into Pebble and teach you here in a little bit, but maybe share with folks because, you know, I think not everybody realizes that there are folks inside these companies that come from more of these human rights backgrounds and civil society that are actually inside the platforms trying to work hand in hand with product folks, engineers, stuff like that on these types of issues. I had been working with civil society uh, in using open data, social media, anything that might be on a computer or a mobile phone um, for several years at a nonprofit. And I ended up through that work in Yangon in Myanmar or Burma, some people know it, uh, right as the country was opening up and right as the country was getting connected. It was such an incredible and historic time to be there. I lived there for two years and I saw not only Facebook enter a previously closed environment, but also mobile phones and the internet and technology, all this rapid evolution of tech that we've had at least 10 to 15 years to deal with kind of happened within months um, in this country. So I um, moved back to the States and um, this was right about the time when Facebook was really trying to understand in a, in a very deep way how newsfeed was being used in Myanmar because of concerns from people on the ground, people in the region about rumors, misinformation, and hate speech spreading on the platform. So I was recruited by Facebook then to really try to understand the use of the product in the country and region. And it was really trying to understand uh, what the gaps were. Um, How does an average person use the platform? What were some of the risks and harms? And what were some of the things that could be done to do it? So I ended up working at Facebook in a very unexpected way. And eventually that work really turned into what I think a lot of us think of as trust and safety and crisis work. Um, But that was really the focus at Facebook. And then did you move to Twitter immediately from Facebook? Or I can't remember if you had an in-between role as well. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I worked at Facebook um, on on Myanmar and several uh, elections um, around the world focused on Asia. Um, I took some time off to take a breath. And then I got a similar call from Twitter um, to work on uh, harass and abuse, uh, specifically targeting women journalists, which was I think another category of a really difficult thorny issue the company had been dealing with for a really long time and was ready to take a holistic look at from a human rights perspective. So I worked as human rights advisor for Twitter um, for two years. So I'm curious, you know, while you were doing that, again, like I mentioned, I think not everybody realizes there's folks with those two roles in, you know, that or with the experience of both tech and human rights um, doing that. What were some of the toughest trade-offs that you encountered in doing that work inside those companies? I mean, so many of these decisions that have to do with how does something on a platform affect people offline are really hard to judge, uh, especially if there's no precedent. So some of the hardest decisions We're trying to make decisions. Say, for example, um, I think people are really familiar with the idea that someone might get kicked off a platform, deplatforming someone. 
a classic decision that you have to make in a role on, say, like a human rights team is advising on whether or not there are any downstream impacts of kicking off a leader who might have a mixed human rights record or a mixed human rights background or has some history of abuse or is affiliated with something that might be problematic to a community of people in that country. These things are really hard to judge unless they've happened before. And so I often felt like you could do the best um, work talking to experts on the ground, which I think continues to be the most important piece, I would say, of this work is talking to people who have lived experience, who are in the environment you're trying to protect or safeguard. But there have been times where decisions have been made and nothing happened. And I think there's always a question of, did it matter as much as we thought it would, um, aside from you know setting the right precedent? And then there are other times where a decision seems very small and straightforward, but it has huge impacts on how people might be talking about something, the safety of a group of people, whether they're a journalist or an at-risk activist group and so on. And so... Um, I don't think there's a scientific way often to make the best decision when it comes to something like upholding the rights of as many people as possible. I don't know how much you can speak to this or how much thought you have on this, but you know, the oversight board decision recently on the Cambodian prime minister and recommending his temporary removal from Facebook and then Facebook deciding not to, not to do that. Um, I know you were deep in the middle of, of trying to start a company then. So I don't know how much you were paying attention to it, but I'm kind of curious your perspective on that because it is such a tough call. Like there are so many different layers of the onion and you really don't know, like there's, not great consequences either way that you choose there. I am at least a year and a half removed from what's happening in Cambodia. And so I haven't followed that case closely, but I will look it up after this. What I think that um, is really important, though, for such an important case like that um, in a complicated media environment is really understanding the use and perception of a platform like Facebook in a country like Cambodia. I think that was something that didn't happen until much later in the industry. I don't know what your perspective would be on it, Katie, but I think it's really easy to understand, okay, what's the best thing for the product as the builders of the product? What is the best thing for the community of people that we believe to use the product? But this question of like, what space does this platform occupy in the life and imagination of an entire country of people is something that's been very hard to understand um, until people were going to these countries, talking to people, doing really rigorous social science research, um, and then understanding the body of science around the intersection of social media in that country's politics and society. And so I would hope that in this case, there was um, a lot of consideration for the role that not only social media, but the specific platform played in Cambodia, and that was evaluated. I feel like the Oversight Board has done a really good job of parsing that out, and the partners that they have in talking to civil society have played a big role in that. So I've been encouraged by that trend. Well, and I think the Oversight Board, they absolutely have done a great job on on that. I think, though, um, and I can totally see why the Oversight Board came to the conclusion that they did, and I can see why Facebook came to the conclusion, I guess I should say Meta, came to the conclusion they did to not actually kick him off. I think it was also challenging because the Oversight Board decision came before 
I'm going to use election in quotes here. So everybody who's on audio knows that I'm, I'm doing that. And then Meta didn't have to make their decision until after the election. And I think one of the trickier things as well that I think is a third rail that we haven't had enough discussion on, or as the oversight board had to pay attention to, is, is it different in making that decision in the lead up to an election? Is it different if it's an election in what we consider free and fair or partly free versus a not free election? versus afterwards like there's nuances here i think in terms of timing that are also important to take in potentially take into account when thinking about the impact that a decision by a platform can have on the overall potentially democratic process or even just you know overall governance process of a country yeah it's such a good point and i think that was something that in my early early conversations with civil society was always the first thing that was told to a company, which is any actions that you take or don't take or things that you say or don't say are often used in a political context. And being aware of that, I think, makes it really important to think about not only what you're going to decide, but of course, how you roll it out, just like in any political situation. Yeah. And I think to your point about everything being politicized, I remember the verification check marks could be politicized. If you happen to verify one opponent, one candidate before another, like all those different things can really start to to play a role. Um, part of your role, though, was not just like planned events like elections, but also those that were unplanned. Those could be natural disasters. They could be bombings. They could be military coups that are happening. Can you share a little bit for people about sort of how a company needs to approach those potentially differently or maybe even the same of something as like a planned event that we know is going to happen, which is an election? It is so important, I think, for any user-generated content platform now to be prepared for these sort of events and crises. crises. Um, I think the only thing that we know now is that they happen regularly. And yes, staffing for them is really important. I worked on, I remember a big... Uh, this was a translation crisis, but it ended up being a very big political event in in the Asia region. Um, there was a mistranslation. So Facebook, as most people who listen to your podcast probably know, has an auto translation feature where there's two way translation happening that you can opt into. So there was an incident where a post about uh, the visit of President Xi Jinping to the region uh, had been mistranslated into the native language of the person who was looking at Facebook. And uh, it translated his name into a very not safe for work word. And there was a lot of confusion, pandemonium, frustration. I think for anyone who has never trained a large language model, there were questions about whether or not some of this was intentional or low resourcing. And so I worked on a team that quickly had to, you know, in a situation like that, manage the conversation externally, internally, and then really try to understand what happened and then uh, come up with a solution. So the first step of a lot of this work is really just trying to understand the ground truth. And that I would say is almost 80% of a lot of the work that I did on the technical side, going deep, talking to teams, 
The unfortunate truth is for a lot of these um, technical crises, nothing is is built uh, to be perfect. And you're constantly iterating and you're constantly building. In this case, this model didn't have enough training data and it was spitting out something that was lower quality than I think what anyone would have liked. And so figuring out how to communicate that, I think, was the most challenging part. And people weren't really prepared to receive what the answer was. Can we actually zoom out really quickly? And forgive me because I did not include this on the pre-list of questions, but it occurs to me that I've not yet done a podcast that covers the Asia region as a whole, which is almost really complicated to even put it all together in one region because of the number of different languages and cultures and all of that 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 goes into it. I was wondering if you could kind of like if you were meeting somebody at a party and sort of explaining what it's like to work across that entire region, how would you sort of describe it and sort of some of the the biggest challenges that come with that? It is I think among the the most diverse set of countries you could be tasked to work with, especially within this industry, because you have countries with really intense regulation discussions happening that are very relevant to Silicon Valley. I know a lot of people have been uh, following some of the discussions in Australia, and people sort of forget that's often part of the region, but it, it very much is in the portfolio of anyone who covers Asia. Two really, really, really emerging media environments. I mean, we talked a little bit about Myanmar, but there are countries all across Southeast Asia that have large communities that are just coming online for the first time. And so you have mo- like highly evolved media ecosystems, emerging ones, and then layer on top of that, really diverse politics closed societies, open societies, um, places where a post on Facebook uh, could lead to offline harm or uh, a jail sentence. I would say it's a place where I've never felt like so much was at stake. Uh, So it is incredibly rewarding to work on social media, content governance, um, crisis in Asia, but the stakes are very, very high. Yeah. For any listeners that may not have worked like in tech or other places, everybody kind of defines their regions a little bit differently. But like to give you a sense, the Asia region includes everyone from like Sarah was mentioning, Australia, New Zealand, but also in Japan and South Korea, but it's also got North Korea. It's got China. It's got, I think Russia was, Russia really depends by every co- company. And I think in terms of where they put it, India sometimes is separated out. Sometimes it's included, but it really is a very diverse from established democracies to not free countries. Also some of just the biggest populations in the world as well, which makes it part of every time I talk about all the elections next year, it's just the fact that it's India and Indonesia, two of the most populous countries that are going to be going to the polls and why that's so important to to pay attention to as, as part of all of this. But also importantly, the best food. So I have, I always loved working in Asia. Oh, the best food. I so miss, <laughs> I know, I so miss, I, I just had a friend who just got back. He, he just got back from Vietnam and, and a couple of other places. And I just, they were talking about the food and I was so jealous <laughs> of all of that. So I, I miss it. I, I need, I need somebody to pay for me to go take a trip back over there. And so I can uh, try all of that again. Let's shift to Pebble really quickly. So tell us a bit more about what Pebble was. Some people might know it as T2 also, but first tell us a little bit about what the platform was and a little bit of how you got pulled into being a co-founder. Pebble was a Twitter alternative 
with a safety first value proposition. We came out and said, if you want a kinder, gentler, more fun social media experience, um, Pebble was was the place for you. And it was originally T2. That was our placeholder name. When Elon took over Twitter, myself, my co-founder Gabor, and um, a larger community of us were talking to everyone. And the thing that we heard over and over was, we need a lifeboat. We don't want to stay on Twitter anymore. We're really worried about the content governance decisions that are happening. We're not sure about whether or not we feel safe here because of some of the abuse that everyone had seen, particularly targeting journalists, women, and marginalized communities. And so I was fired as part of the first round of layoffs that happened after Elon took over almost exactly a year ago. And my dear friend Gabor called me up and said, I I think this is the moment. I think, you know, it's so hard to overcome network effects. And I think that's why we haven't seen a lot of Twitter alternatives previously, but we felt like there was this window and opening after talking to all these people who were looking for a Twitter-like thing. So that was um, how T2 and Pubble got started. And so I know that one of the things that was really important to you all was sort of taking a more safety slash human rights-centered approach from the get-go. Not that all companies don't do that, but startups do this in different ways. Walk us through a little bit more of, of sort of that yeah. thinking and what that meant to you all. You know, we, with the three of us, um, Mike, who later joined our team as CTO, also came to this with a very safety first approach. He'd worked at Discord on building up the trust and safety teams there. I think at the heart of it is we're, we, the three of us were very mission oriented. We wanted something that met our own personal standards for civility and inclusivity. And so a lot of it was driven just by what we wanted to see exist in the world. I mentioned the need for it in the market, but the bigger thesis, which we didn't really get to in the end, was we felt like because there's this barrage of content out there now, you know, you go on TikTok, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, it's just lots of people talking to you. And we wondered if maybe there was a little bit of an oversaturation of content that people were used to putting out their brands, talking to you, promotion of ideas. And we asked, what would it be like if we could create a place where people could really just be themselves? Would that result in people producing a different type of content that might look and feel different, that might be more authentic and ultimately create for a different experience? And we've seen a little bit, or at least I've heard people talk about this on TikTok and, uh, you know, that being a place where people are sharing things that, you know, maybe make them feel more vulnerable or things they haven't been able to share previously on larger, big spaces. And so we were also very interested in that thesis and felt like safety had to be a part of it if people really could feel like they could be themselves. One of the things that sticks out to my mind was first how you were all thinking about verification and you were trying to think about verification in different ways. I'm wondering if you can go into that a little bit more about, A, why did you think verification and giving people, I think you had a purple check mark was what it was, or I can't remember what exactly what the badge was that we that we had. Yeah. Um, but you were doing individual interviews at first to make sure that people were who they, who they said they were. Yeah. Um, kind of like, why did you all think that verification was important? And then were you trying to approach it in a different way than you've seen other platforms try to do that? 
This was one of our first big investment decisions um, because it was pretty costly. Um, I did verification myself, which is a pretty big investment of, of my time. And then later we had to find a vendor and paid per verification. Uh, so it was a cost that we had to incur and people ended up paying for it. Spam is one of the biggest problems that people said they did not like on Twitter. The fake accounts, the army of like copycat accounts that would show up and bombard your timeline. And so we said, why don't we from scratch build a healthier ecosystem? And verification seemed like the obvious way to do that. It's not without risks or costs, right? We know a lot of communities think it's important to be anonymous and a big part of safety is also feeling like you can show up in an online space the way that you want to. So we did have a lot of discussions around that, but ultimately we thought this would be a very good early investment in starting a clean, healthy ecosystem from scratch. If people had more information about who was on and they were who they said they were, we thought that would be a great first start. And so that was some of the thinking behind it. And we were really surprised by not only how much uh, people liked it, but um, how much it drove uh, positive behavior. People were fine with us saying, you know, you have to be on the platform for a month. You have to have posted once or twice or a few times. And you have to be willing to actually uh, show us some documentation. We were nervous or worried that that might cause too much friction, but it actually did the opposite. I think it got people much more invested in Pebble. You mentioned as part of that, you were like, oh, it was really a big investment in cost for us. And I think one thing that those outside of tech sometimes don't realize is that doing these safety measures absolutely have a cost to them. And you can't, when you're a, a, absolutely a startup or any company, really, you can't necessarily do everything at once, right? Like there's decisions, desktop version first or mobile version first. Do we do verification over yes. over something else, right? Can you share a little bit about the values you all were using and trying to make some of these decisions about where you were putting your very limited cash and resources that you had? I so appreciate that question because that's exactly how it felt. I loved that game that Mike Masnick put out because it I just all of us felt so seen where you're truly yes. just... <laughs> You have one small pot of money and you need to do everything. And sometimes you can't unlock those options. It was really driven by what do we need now and what's going... It was an... I would say it was an impact-based decision-making process, which was, I think, surprising for me because I had a lot of assumptions around what was needed. And maybe that's not surprising because I come from a like Facebook... Twitter-centric worldview rather than building something from scratch. I found myself building in things that felt like table stakes, but weren't actually trust and safety problems yet on Pebble. The problems that we saw most were, we had a little bit of misinformation, which I thought was surprising that it happened so early. A lot of personal fundraisers and scam type content, a lot of not safe for work content, but a lot of mental health and self-harm issues that emerged early. Those I would say are the issues that I was focused on least in my big tech career. And so I think that quickly led, it, led me to pivot to thinking about, okay, how do we tackle those issues now? And what's the smallest way we can test that? I think it's unfortunate right now as a user-generated content startup, there aren't a lot of 
things you can draw from. A lot of the vendors that are out there are built for like at scale enterprise clients. I'm excited. There's this awesome discussion about open source tooling because I think that's the direction, but it it's not, you know, totally off the shelf yet. And so we built everything ourselves and things that were really helpful were like our admin console that allowed me to go in. And once we made a policy decision and an enforcement decision, it was very easy for me without being an engineer to go in and, you know, suspend an account. If we got a report about something and needed to review it, something that was actually really useful that we built later that we didn't at first was uh, to have an option to immediately take action on the content until we had finished reviewing it, just in case in the time that it took for us to review it, there might be some kind of event that would happen uh, that would have a negative impact on the community. And so these small things that we built actually ended up being the most useful things. We didn't really need a lot of the big fancy tools for the stage of company we were at. And that's something that I was really happy that we prioritized. Did I hear you right? Forgive me if I heard you wrong, but um, did you say one of the options was to like to reduce the reach of the content until you made a decision? Because that seems yeah. like something you would learn from big tech because initially it was like leave it up or take it down. And then later on, the product teams had to build in tools to be like, oh, let's reduce the reach while we figure out this stuff happening, et cetera, et cetera. And so I'm wondering if that's like almost a lesson learned from sort of the big tech world of like, let's not make it a binary. Let's give ourselves a couple of other options here while we're trying to deal with a piece of content and figure out what we're going to do. A hundred percent. Only the downside is it's like, you know, having the luxury sedan experience and then going to your golf cart or your like go kart. <laughs> you know? like, there are so many nuanced product feature options that uh, the number of times we said, if only we could downrank this, <laughs> this would make <laughs> our lives so much easier. Was, um, more than, you know, I can count. Uh, so yes, I think there were, that was the best example of something that we just decided to do very quickly based on having seen uh, the benefits of having uh, a range of moderation actions that you can take in building out that entire ecosystem. But I think this is also something important that I always encourage folks on the outside to think about is I, I I worry sometimes that folks think no matter the size of the company, that they all have the same tools that the big tech companies do. And it's like, no, 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 no. They are not like, it takes time to build this <laughs> stuff up. And it's not a flip of the switch of like, just because Meta or Google or Microsoft or whomever it is who have had years and years and years to build some of these toolings up and, and everything doesn't mean that startup have that same luxury um, to, to do yeah. that. You don't have as much resourcing and tooling, but there is a benefit early on of being so immersed in the problems. Having the entire team, for example, be in the trust and safety channel and knowing exactly what all the different issues are made it so easy to align on figuring out what the next thing to build would be because you didn't have to make the case. You didn't have to make the argument. The, I'd say like feedback loop of analysis and decision-making is just so short in at this early stage because everyone is so connected to all the problems and feels it so viscerally. 
um, almost immediately, maybe to a fault, because I think there are a few times where maybe we over-indexed on certain safety concerns, and it probably would have been fine holding on with what we had. But it's always, it feels impossible to get the calibration right. Like, how can you be most prudent and thoughtful and planful versus just reacting all the time and building after the fact? That's another plug for the Mike Masnick game, which I'll, I'll link to in the show notes. Um, again, I think I've linked to it multiple times. But like, I actually lost lost that game the first two times because my content moderation speed got too slow on different things. And so then I was having to make, I started making choices <laughs> of being like, maybe it'll be okay. I'd ideally like to do this, but I think I'll do this. And I made it to the end of the game, but like, it really does make you really have to make some of those where you were like, I don't like either of these choices. And it's like, yes, that's the whole point <laughs> of like the game and, and having to, to do that. Um, totally. And I, and I wonder like too, as you all were making those decisions, how much were you thinking about the precedent setting of them? Like, were you thinking about the fact that you're kind of making some case law for the organization as you're making some of these decisions the first time? It was hard not to. I think that's what I and my co-founders came into it thinking, but it changed so quickly. I think given how small our team was, given the amount of resourcing we had and tooling that we had, it felt so much more appropriate and easier to just say, we're going to get it wrong. Like we know we're, there are going to be situations where maybe it's a lot better to get faster at fixing the problem and having a process for that than being so worried we're going to get it wrong. And so that felt like a good place to land. We had a form that we set up for people. Again, this is also borrowed from what we've seen in big tech, but a remediation process right? Like if you've, if you felt like something that happened on the platform was not consistent, fill out this form. I reviewed that form. And there were a lot of people, there were a lot of decisions where like, after taking a second look, we thought, okay, maybe, um, you know, we're going to give this user another chance. And uh, we were really happy with the rate of this isn't retention in the way that most product or platforms think about retention. But um, I can remember one specific case where someone came back and actually was a really positive community member after going through that experience, which felt like a really big success. Yeah, I think it's Twitch just recently changed their process too. And I think they've got a remediation process that they put into place. I'll have to double check if it's if it's them or, or Discord that, that did that recently. But so Pebble recently shut down. Can you tell us a bit more about why? We just shut down the platform. We ran out of time. We got very clear signals from investors that threads had become a dominant experience for people looking for Twitter alternatives. And of course, people are still using Twitter and X. And we just ran out of time to to iterate. And uh, the, the main kind of thing that everyone was looking at and that we were trying to hit was, are we growing fast enough? And so the feedback was, you're not growing fast enough. And it seems like there's these other alternatives that are around to stay. So we were, you know, I think we always knew there was this risk. Uh, it was a year of a lot of externalities. I think that's probably putting it lightly. And that was, that was sort of that. So that's where we ended up. And what we didn't expect was the day after we shut down the site, one of our community members created a replica of Pebble on Mastodon and managed to recreate the entire experience in a few days. I think it was two days or three days. I don't remember. 
uh, it's pebble.social on Mastodon now. Well, that's really cool. What are some of the things that you all learned from that experience? Because I think a cynic might say, you know, between this and also what we've been seeing it happen at OpenAI with some of the board stuff, like I'm, I'm worried a little bit that people are going to look at that and be like, trust and safety and growth. Growth is just always going to win. This is further proof that like you can't have a trust and safety, fo- you know, centered product, stuff like that. I I don't think that's the full truth, but I worry that that's how some people might take something like this of, of Pebble being shut down and other things. I'm curious your sort of perspective on that. I know you're still early days of kind of reflecting on all of this, but some of your initial thoughts of like, would you have done things a little bit differently or, and, and do you think that there's still a way to, to do something like this? I think trust and safety is essential and critical, um, but it doesn't guarantee business success. Um, and so I'm not trying to, this isn't a cop-out answer, but I really feel like you have to do both. I think for Pebble, the safety to-do list was very straightforward. It's like, you have these set of problems and this is how they get fixed. Building a new, exciting, thrilling consumer tech experience was less straightforward. And um, I think that's where we we didn't um, hit the mark. And um, it's really important in this space, especially if you want to build a VC scaled company, uh, obviously to knock that out of the park. And so I'd like to think you can do both. I do have different views around timing and how much to focus on one or the other. I've been telling a lot of my friends that I feel like, you know, we don't go on Yelp and look for a restaurant to go eat at based on how clean their bathrooms are. It's like something we expect and it's very important, but it's not the leading talking point that a restaurant kind of goes out with. And so I I think we encountered something similar where uh, we know it's really important and um, it's essential for democracy and society that we're thinking about the consequences of our online experiences, but it has to come with all those things that people want um, out of a, a tech experience. Well, and I think that goes to the role that, you know, potentially regulation can play of cert- certainly giving everybody sort of a leveling playing field or like, to your point of like, I think the reason people don't think about the bathrooms is because there's a health inspector who has to go and check those restaurants to make sure that they're clean and they can be operating and stuff like that. Right. Like, and then there's other market things that go into account of like, is the food good? And and that's where you go to Yelp to get those, those listings of those recommendations and everything, because you do have that health inspector doing that job and you trust that they are going to do their job um, around all of that. And I think too, it's more of an antitrust question because yeah, once threads, you had so much competition, there were so many Twitter alternatives that people were trying even before threads came on the scene. You had Blue Sky, like you said, you had Mastodon. Um, and and then just when thread, threads came out, they just had such a advantage with the scale and everything of having gone through so much of this that I can totally see why why VCs um, might have might have bolted at it. But this is another, I just really want to reemphasize this point of that you can't focus only on growth or trust and safety, you really do need that balance. And anybody who's trying to do this has to kind of really kind of navigate 
um, what that right balance is and when in a really rapidly changing environment. And I think the last thing I would just say too is I'm really glad that you all, I'll link to it in the show notes, you all put out that media, I think it was an article on Medium about some of your lessons learned. I'd love it. I, I'm just saying this for me personally, like you all did some really cool stuff like the AI haikus. You were using AI to like send us personalized stuff of like growth stuff to get us back to the, oh, the platform. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was fun. I mean, I got that art. I got the yeah. thing from that reporter who is like, did you know I used AI to generate a response to your post on Pebble? And I was like, I had no idea <laughs> that it was AI generated. Right. Like, um, but I think I, the the last thing I just to, to point out to the listeners and others who many of whom will know this is that just because a company might get acquired or shuts down, it doesn't mean the lessons learned from that cannot be absorbed by others and everything else like that. Those are all such good points. The point about coming in as an existing player versus a new player is also relevant on the trust and safety side of things. When pebble.social was launched on Mastodon, I don't know if anyone who follows Pebble would have seen this, but the uh, instance was immediately mobbed, right? They were like, there was dogpiling and all these issues. I think maybe there's something happening where people target new Mastodon instances and the community was begging for moderation and trust and safety. And so that I think, again, showed why it's so important to think about safety from the beginning and build it in from the beginning. It's just hard and expensive to do that. Right. It comes at the cost of other things. And then the point about the AI stuff, I love your feedback on it. Uh, it is building trust around AI right now is really interesting. I'm really excited to see how startups handle this, but this was one of the most controversial things um, on Pebble, some of the AI uh, experiments that we were launching. Yeah, but I also think that it was controversial, but you will also being very forthcoming on it. And I think it was, it gave you a chance. I mean, again, all of this is experimentation right now. And so it is going to cause people to have that conversation and stuff. But I, I have to, you know, I totally get it. You all, you're like, we got to fit. Also, when you're trying to scale, like, is there a way for us to use AI to help us scale this and resources we don't have and doing that types of growth hacking and, and stuff like that. So anyways, if you all, after you've, you know, had more time to rest and reflect. Um, I think that that would be an interesting story and everything of, of how that came about. That's a great Well, Sarah, I really want to thank you for joining us today and sharing your story. I'm so excited to see what you do. I'm sure that you and I will be, with all the elections happening next year, we're going to be probably in the same space quite a bit, but I really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks, Katie. So fun to chat and have a really nice week. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Impossible Trade-Offs. You can find the show notes and everything for this podcast on my Substack at anchorchange.substack.com. I want to thank all of my guests for doing this. And this episode was edited by Claude Jennings Jr. I hope you all have a great day and thank you so much. 